Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Friday, April 23rd. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. An advisory panel meeting today to discuss the future of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and the risk of blood clots as the total number of coronavirus infections in the United States approaches 32 million. Derek Chauvin, convicted of the murder of George Floyd, now seeing new allegations from his past come to light as an alternate juror speaks out about the former officer's trial. And President Biden tackling the climate crisis as part of a virtual summit highlighting the major changes needed and the jobs that could come as part of a complete energy overhaul in the United States. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. It's a critical day for the future of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine. The CDC and FDA expected to make a decision on how to move forward. This as they investigate a handful of new blood clotting cases and vaccine hesitancy grows among Americans. Lorraine Caceres has the latest. The CDC and FDA expected to make an important decision today on the future of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine. Advisors meeting to either make no changes to the vaccine's administration, place restrictions for certain age groups or gender, or even maybe stop it completely. That last option unlikely to happen. The fact that the Europeans already did so a couple of days ago and decided it was okay to proceed just with a warning on the vaccine so that everybody knows is encouraging that maybe the U.S. will decide to do the same, but I don't want to judge what their consequence might be here of their decisions. Aside from the six blood clotting cases first reported, the CDC is now also investigating a handful of similar cases related to the J&J vaccine. The condition called thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome or TTS, is characterized by a rare type of blood clot in the brain and possibly other large blood clots, along with a low number of blood clotting cells called platelets. Some blood specialists have said they believe it's caused by an unusual immune reaction that targets platelets, causing them to glop together into clots. I think it is important to point out that this is a treatable condition if you recognize it right away. And one of the reasons I think it's been good to have this pause is to get everybody apprised of that so that all physicians know that this is something to watch out for and can be prepared to treat it appropriately if it should happen again in the future. The question now is, will Americans still take the J&J shot? This map shows the areas in darker blue where people are most hesitant to any COVID-19 vaccine. From coast to coast, vaccine appointments going to waste. At this vaccination site in Fresno, California, the masses just never showed up. When 16 and older opened, which we opened two weeks ago, I did expect a rush. And it just, it, it never, it never materialized. In Dallas, Texas, thousands of doses set to expire Monday. The county judge taking to Twitter, pleading people to show up. And while the future of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is decided, Moderna is announcing that they will have a booster shot ready very soon. The goal is to have it ready before a coronavirus surge in the fall, so it might be ready by late summer. Right now they're saying they're expecting to have all the trial data ready by May, and experts are saying that these boosters are going to become increasingly more important as the virus changes and new variants emerge. That's all the information we have right now. Andrea, back to you. 
Thank you, Lorraine. We'll be monitoring this situation. Meanwhile, an update on the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine. That shot does carry the risk of causing rare but severe blood clots, according to updated guidance issued Thursday by the World Health Organization. That update coming after European regulators announced a possible link to blood clotting earlier this month. But the WHO says the benefits of the vaccine still outweigh the risks. AstraZeneca has been widely used across the world, including in Britain and the EU, but blood clots were later noticed among some patients. The chance of it happening is about one in every 100,000 people, but that led some European countries to limit the use of the vaccine. AstraZeneca's vaccine has not been approved in the U.S., and some officials said they don't see it being used at this point. And for more on vaccines, let's go to Dr. Hillary Fairbrother. She's an emergency medicine physician in Houston, Texas. Thank you so much for being with us today, doctor. Welcome to UNews. Thank you so much for having me. So as we just noted, a CDC panel is convening today to decide how to move forward with the J&J &J vaccine. What do you expect to see should the U.S. resume distribution of this vaccine, but with some warnings? So I think this pause, like they've said it from the CDC, has been very important for the J&J &J vaccine. Uh, if for nothing else to let every patient and every doctor in our country know that this vaccine does have some risk to it. If we look at the risk, though, I think we're looking at a tremendously low risk, almost you know one case in a million doses given. And it does seem to target certain populations. It seems to be more predominant in women, seems to be more predominant in younger women. So I think what we're going to see is a vaccine that's either released with just like the information. If a patient comes back with a severe headache, we need to take this into account and check for one of these severe blood clots as physicians um, and kind of a warning for patients so that they are quick to seek care so we can treat this. Or I think it might come back with some restrictions on gender and age. I think that's unlikely, but that I think is the, the strongest thing that the FDA and the CDC um, might decide today. Now, the CDC just released data about the safety of COVID-19 vaccines for use with women who are pregnant. What did they say exactly? So we have had a couple of different studies and trials. Now, now keep in mind, everyone gets worried about vaccines in pregnant women. And when we first do data collection, and when Moderna, Pfizer, J&J &J did all of their initial data collection, they did not include pregnant women in their trials. And that is the standard. That's not anything special to COVID-19. That is the standard for any vaccine trial. There are, of course, a few women who are going to be very early in pregnancy, and then they watch those women. But in general, children and pregnant women are not in the initial study groups for new vaccines. Um, as the vaccine came out um, in mid-December, uh, the American College of Obstetricians and other groups said that they wanted pregnant women to have the ability to get the vaccine if they chose. And we know that pregnant women, especially late in pregnancy, are at much higher risk for severe complications of COVID. And those include death, preeclampsia, miscarriage, and, and all sorts of really awful things to both the mom and the, the unborn child. So with that in mind, obstetricians have been mostly telling their patients, especially in later pregnancy, to strongly consider getting the vaccine to protect themselves from the coronavirus.
Now, recently, um, as of a couple days ago, the CDC published in the New England Journal of Medicine about 35,000 women who were pregnant who chose to get either the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine. J&J was not included on this first study. And in that observational study, they did not see any difference in any kind of the bad outcomes that we would, would we would want to pay attention to. So no increase in birth defects or miscarriage or any complications to mom or baby. It's still early and we still have more data to collect. Believe it or not, 35,000 is not enough to be conclusive, but I think more and more doctors are really encouraging pregnant women to get this vaccine to protect themselves as they are at higher risk for severe disease. At the end of the day, it's also a very personal decision for these women. Now, overall, nearly half of the country still has not gotten vaccinated. What would you say to those people who are still on the fence about getting the vaccine? I always tell people the same thing. I, I encourage them to be thoughtful about their decision to get a vaccine, and I encourage them to speak to their physician. I think this whole disease process has become very politicized, and there's a lot of information out there on the internet, on Facebook, on Instagram that is not accurate. And what I kind of tell them is, you know, if I needed to get my car fixed, I wouldn't go on Instagram to try and guess what was wrong with my car or ask my friend who's a lawyer what to do with my car. I would go to a mechanic. Well, this is science and this is your body and this is medicine. So I ask you, if you have concerns about getting vaccinated, to go to your doctor and ask your doctor to explain some of the reasons they think that you should get vaccinated and some of the risks and benefits. I think that that alleviates a lot of concern and it takes the politics out of it. We don't need to have politics in this decision for patients. We need patients to make this personal decision with their own family members and with their doctors. Oh, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Hillary Fairbrother, emergency medicine physician. Thanks so much for the work you do. Take care. Thanks, Andrea. And another coronavirus news. Healthy people who continue to test positive after recovering from COVID-19 don't appear to be infectious. And that's what a new study based on NBA players and staff suggest. Among the more than 3,600 people in the so-called NBA bubble last year, those who recovered from COVID-19 but still tested positive did not transmit the virus to others, despite many of them participating in unmasked activities like training and games after recovery. The study was published Thursday in the journal JAMA Internal Medicine. The quote-unquote bubble refers to the closed campus where NBA players and staff stayed during basketball season to limit their risk of COVID-19. As for how long and how often the positive people continued testing positive, well, that varied, with positive tests persisting for 14 to 68 days from the date of the initial infection. And now we turn to policing in America. Days after his conviction in a Minnesota court, new details emerge about Derek Chauvin's 19-year career. Officials looking into an incident involving a 14-year-old and an alternate juror who was part of the George Floyd trial is now breaking her silence. Meanwhile, another police-involved shooting involving a black man sparking protest in North Carolina. People in Minneapolis are coming together to heal after the trial of Derek Chauvin and the funeral of Dante Wright. One of the alternate jurors is now speaking out. Lisa Christensen says she thinks no one was a winner in the trial. 
She called Chauvin's actions on May 25, 2020, a huge mistake that cost somebody their life. I was sitting pretty much across from him, so when I was done note-taking or looking between the lawyers and paying attention to the witnesses, I did lock eyes with him a couple of times, and it, it was a little uncomfortable. Christensen described the testimony of Dr. Martin Tobin, in particular, a turning point in the case. The renowned pulmonary critical care doctor testified that Floyd died from Chauvin restricting his ability to breathe. I understood what he was saying. Um, I thought it was very powerful, probably the most important witness they had. As Chauvin awaits sentencing behind bars, there are new details about his police career and personal life. The DOJ is looking at a September 2017 incident involving a black teenager. The confrontation was captured by body cameras. Chauvin was dispatched to a home on a domestic dispute call between a mother and her son. After entering the home, officers told the son to lie on the ground, which he refused. Chauvin allegedly then hit the 14-year-old boy in the head so hard he needed stitches, grabbing the teen by the throat, causing him to lose consciousness and fall to the ground later telling the officers he couldn't breathe. While the DOJ weighs whether to bring federal charges against him, New police-involved shootings are garnering the country's attention. Now in North Carolina, protesters gathered in Elizabeth City following the fatal shooting of Andrew Brown while deputies tried to serve an arrest warrant. He was nonviolent. Anybody that knew him would tell you that. He didn't even carry a gun. Brown's longtime neighbor alleges she saw the shooting. He was driving away, away. Even though they was giving a search warrant, but he was driving away. Why did y'all let off on him like that? Court records show Brown had a history of criminal charges stretching back into the 1990s, including a misdemeanor drug possession conviction and some pending felony drug charges. But the community is asking for transparency and demanding accountability. It is tremendously early in this investigation. The sheriff says there is body cam footage of the incident, but so far it hasn't been made public. The shooting investigation has been turned over to the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigations. A brand new ABC News Washington Post poll finds 60 percent of Americans say the country should do more to hold police accountable for the mistreatment of black people, while 63 percent say black people and other minorities do not receive equal treatment as whites in the criminal justice system. Meanwhile, the mother of Micaiah Bryant speaking out about her daughter's death. The 16-year-old was shot and killed by police in Columbus, Ohio, Tuesday. Body cam video appears to show Bryant trying to stab another young woman at the time. Bryant's mom said she is having a hard time coping with what happened. Let's listen. No parent should have to go through this. If this is so unreal, the hurt that I feel... I'm devastated. I was shocked when I heard the news. Uh, it was unbelievable. It's still unbelievable. 
The case is currently being reviewed by the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation. And this week's guilty verdict in the George Floyd murder case is bringing hope to social justice activists fighting against police brutality and systemic racism. But while Congress is still pondering action on a House-passed police reform bill, some of these activists are proposing a different bill, which they say would have done more to save George Floyd's life. Let's go to Ashley Henderson. She's the co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center and an activist with Movement for Black Lives. Ashley, welcome to U News. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, what does this guilty verdict in the Chauvin trial mean to you? It is a clear demonstration of power from the uprisings of 2020, right? We know that this was not in any way a measure of, of, of justice for our people, um, that the only measure of justice for George Floyd would be George Floyd here and with us and thriving. And we're sending love to his family and to our, our friends and colleagues that are on the ground in Minneapolis. Um, but it is a demonstration of power. What it, what it isn't is, is, is any measure of justice or, or the reforms that we need. Um, and quite frankly, I think what we would argue as, as the movement for black lives is that no verdict would have changed what we know to be true. A racist and unjust system will never deliver justice for our people and it never kept us safe. Um, these police officers, um, particularly even thinking about Micaiah, right? They continue to terrorize our communities. They're using tear gas and militarized weapons on peaceful protesters to silence our voices. Um, there's a need for deep systemic change and we are uh, committed to fighting for that systemic change. And we know that if we don't fight for it and win it, we are bound to repeat this cycle again and again. The police reform bill that is currently waiting in the Senate bans, among other things, chokeholds and creates a national registry for police misconduct. Do you support this bill? And is this the right bill to reform police departments at this moment? So this is what we know, right? The Justice and Policing Act does, does multiple things, including banning chokeholds. It does uh, uh, you know, some, some reformation of the language, uh, some oversight uh, of, of, uh, for local procurement of military equipment by police who shouldn't have military equipment at all. It adds some data transparency provisions. It changes the federal use of standard, uh, standard of, of, of force standard to usually, uh, uh, sorry, let me start over. It changes the federal use of, of force standard to only when necessary instead of reasonable, right? So if you've heard uh, the terminology of police officers using reasonable force and that getting them uh, some impunity in terms of, of murdering black people in this country. It changes that um, and it ends qualified immunity for local and federal law enforcement officers. The challenge, though, is that there is no such thing as justice in policing. It's a flawed framework that relies on a flawed root cause analysis and an inaccurate theory of change. It doesn't defund the police. It entrenches a billion dollars with a B into incrementalist reforms that we know do not work. It is police officers overseeing police officers, cops overseeing cops, right? The attorney general becomes the overseer of the bill. And essentially what that means is the police oversight that we're demanding is then left in the hands of the police. Um, and then it encourages body cameras, more training and other ineffective policy solutions that increase police budgets. Uh, they're all embedded up and down the bill. Um, so we have in the movement for black lives have offered an alternative uh that alternative is called the breathe act right 
Um, and that name was was chosen with intention, right? It's because this bill would actually open up the opportunity for Black people in all communities uh, to divest from policing and invest in healthy and sustainable and equitable communities, where the Justice Policing Act gives more money to the police and prioritizes reformist strategies uh, that have been wholly ineffective and relies on law enforcement to fix policing instead of entrusting communities that are closest to the issues, relying on the Attorney General as the overseer of the bill, the BREATHE Act, divest from federal grants and agencies that are primarily funding law enforcement in the carceral state. It builds a new approach to community safety. It meaningfully invests dollars into our communities and it builds real accountability for police officers and for elected officials. Um, so the BREATHE Act is a, is a uh, long story short, a legislative love letter to the folks that participated in the uprisings of 2020 uh, that were demanding defunding the police. Ashley, let's talk about this on a broader level. What are other structural changes would you say that we need now beyond addressing police brutality to start tackling systemic racism um, across the country? Absolutely. I mean, we have to have more space for conversations about alternatives to police services, right? There are more effective methods of providing safety and security to our communities that reject the murder and brutalization of Black people. We have to talk about decriminalization, right? The racist and gendered laws of this country that continue to disproportionately impact Black communities. We can repeal outdated laws and bylaws that do not serve us. By prioritizing public health and social support, we can eliminate our reliance on surveillance and enforcement. And then we have to have a real conversation about disarmament, demilitarization, and technology, right? SWAT teams do not increase safety. By shifting funding away from military-grade weapons and invasive technologies, we can create nonviolent solutions to social problems. This is our moment to be the, the folks that bend the moral arc of the universe towards justice uh, through this demand of defunding the police. But our conversation doesn't end at defunding the police. The, the period to that sentence is taking that that money, those resources, those taxpayer dollars and investing them in building healthy, sustainable and equitable communities for all people. Uh, we know that when we see uh, collective liberation in this country, but liberation in particular in this country, that everybody wins. And so we are committed as over 160 organizations all across the United States um, and building more and more with our comrades all across the globe uh, to make sure that we see black people free in our lifetime and that anything else is just certainly not acceptable. Well, thank you so much, Ashley Henderson, co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center. Thank you for sharing your perspective with us. Thanks so much for having me. And now to Washington, where it's day two of President Biden's climate summit. The president yesterday unveiling an ambitious goal of cutting emissions by half in the next seven years. Edwin Pitti is live in Washington, D.C. with more on this. Edwin. Hi, Andrea, I can tell you on this second day of the White House Summit on Climate Change, President Biden emphasized on the new jobs that combating climate change could bring, including in fields not conceived of yet. From the East Room, Biden stressed the importance of ensuring that workers who thrive in yesterday's industries have a place in the upcoming economy. Biden is seeking to reestablish the United States as a reliable global leader on climate. He's doing so by promising to cut U.S. emissions to half by the end of this decade and also in finding common grounds with China on the many issues regarding climate change. Let's listen. Today's final session is not about the threat of climate change poses. It's about the opportunity 
that addressing climate change provides. It's an opportunity to create millions of good-paying jobs around the world. And this is a moment for all of us to build better economies for our children, our grandchildren, and all of us to thrive. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg spoke Thursday at the summit, and his message included lessons from the pandemic on how interconnected we are and also how capable we are of change. Take a listen. We're looking for other countries to make big commitments as well. But we can't do that with a straight face if America isn't leading the way, if we're not walking the talk. That's what this big, bold, but achievable commitment from the president today is going to help us do. Resume that position of U.S. leadership and then challenge the other nations of the world to be part of the solution as well. One of the main accomplishments in today's agenda was to see the U.S., Britain, and the United Arab Emirates endorse a new organization to help farmers suffering from climate change. The support is also coming from the private sector. Investor and Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates said the mission would help vulnerable farmers suffering from unpredictable nature changes and called on other nations to join the initiative. Today's agenda stressed the importance of jobs, I can tell you the Secretary John Kerry, the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy on Climate, said the focus will be to hear directly from governments and community leaders from around the world to see how they see the future and work together to include millions of high-quality, good-paying jobs. We are reporting live in Washington, D.C. Back to you, Andrea. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Likewise, Edwin, thank you for bringing us those developing uh, details. Moving on now, another news out of Washington. Republican Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina will deliver the GOP response following President Biden's address to a joint session of Congress next Wednesday. Scott is the only black Republican in the Senate, and he leads the party's negotiating team on police reforms. Minority leader Mitch McConnell called him one of the most inspiring and unifying leaders in the the nation. In a statement, Scott said he is excited and honored for this opportunity. Biden will speak nearly a hundred days after taking office at the invitation of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And on Thursday, the Senate overwhelmingly passed an anti-Asian hate crimes bill. The measure denounces discrimination against Asian communities in the U.S. It also establishes a new position at the Justice Department to expedite reviews of potential COVID-19-related hate crimes. The bill cleared with plenty of room to spare, garnering broad support from both Democrats and Republicans. The vote was 94 to 1. The only senator who opposed it Missouri Republican Josh Hawley. The measure now goes to the House of Representatives before heading to President Biden's desk for his signature. And still ahead on U News, with the economy still struggling because of the pandemic, officials in Los Angeles announcing that help is on the way for some vulnerable residents there. We'll explain. And we'll take you inside a convention center that's been converted into a facility housing unaccompanied children picked up along the U.S.-Mexico border. Stay with us. But first, a quick preview of this Sunday's episode of Univision's Al Punto. This week, Jorge Ramos sitting down with Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Uh, we had an interview this week with uh, Senator Schumer, and, and he's suggesting the possibility of including an immigration component through reconciliation for this bill. Would you support something like that? 
Well, I'll, I'll leave it to the Senate in terms of uh, exactly what legislative vehicles might uh, might be used to get this done. Uh, certainly, as you know, uh, the president has been very clear on the need for there to be uh, immigration reform. But uh, uh, I understand that to be a separate policy issue than what we're doing here with the jobs plan and the infrastructure vision. So you wouldn't oppose the, the possibility of using reconciliation for including other bills that might jeopardize your plan? Well, uh, again, there are a lot of different mechanisms that can get this done in Congress, but we strongly prefer a bipartisan approach and we'll continue trying to negotiate in good faith to see if that's going to be possible. Be sure to watch the full interview this Sunday on Al Punto on Univision at 10 a.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. The city of Los Angeles is preparing a major effort to help those in need in that community, offering its first implementation of a guaranteed basic income. Jonathan Mejia has more on what that will mean for some residents. Maria Capiz says that due to the pandemic, they cut her work hours at the restaurant where she works. They cut days, hours, and well, the truth, the truth is that it really hit us hard. That's why she's hopeful about the $24 million fund proposed by Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti. To provide $1,000 a month to 2,000 households. The officer explained the plan is to provide $1,000 a month for one year to a total of 2,000 Los Angeles families. Families will be able to use this money for what they need most and will not be questioned, the mayor added. Mrs. Maria Riaga lost her office cleaning job due to the pandemic and says any help is welcome to cover her basic needs. To pay bills for food, buy clothes, shoes. This fund is part of Mayor Eric Garcetti's proposed budget. He says the goal is to address poverty and need. Poverty that during this pandemic has worsened in Los Angeles, especially among the Latino community, since Latinos are heavily represented in the service sector, such as hotels and restaurants. So far, it is not known what mechanism will be used to apply for this assistance. Reported by Juan Carlos Gonzalez in Los Angeles, Jonathan Mejia, U News. The American dream ended for 85 deported Hondurans on Wednesday who had headed north for a better life but faced U.S. authorities seeking to curb undocumented immigration. This is the second such flight to arrive in Honduras with deportees from the United States so far this year. Honduras has been reeling from two back-to-back -back hurricanes that devastated Central America in November as well as a historic economic contraction in part caused by the coronavirus pandemic. Meanwhile, in Southern California, the Long Beach Convention Center has been open for several weeks now, helping to house unaccompanied minors picked up along the border with Mexico. Salvador Duran takes us inside that facility. The Long Beach Convention Center in LA County is now fully operational as a federal emergency shelter and is starting to welcome unaccompanied migrant children who cross the U.S.-Mexico border and were taken into U.S. Border Patrol custody. It is incredibly important that in this moment we treat every single child with compassion, with kindness, and with love. The facility will hold up to a thousand children, most of them Central Americans, from Honduras, Guatemala and El Salvador. About 150 were expected to arrive overnight. Uh, every child that arrives here will have, of course, three meals a day, multiple snacks. Every child that arrives here will have classroom time, three to four hours of classroom time 
with teachers every single day. The situation at the border with thousands of migrants trying to cross into the U.S. has escalated so much that officials have been scrambling to open emergency facilities. California now has three in San Diego, Pomona and Long Beach. Democratic Congressman Alan Lowenthal from California, along with other community leaders, had a chance to tour the facility. He believes that what's happening at the border is a consequence of the federal government's failure to overhaul the current U.S. immigration system. Our federal immigration system is broken and it hasn't been fixed for many decades now. It's, it's, it's been broken. Currently, there are over 20,000 unaccompanied minors under the care of the Department of Health and Human Services. They expect the children to be released to family members who live in the United States on average within a week to 10 days. In terms of the reunification process, then the onus is on HHS to make sure everybody who is turned over to an adult, um, that those adults are appropriately vetted. Federal authorities also told us that one of their top priorities in this humanitarian operation is to reunite all the unaccompanied minors with their parents or loved ones as soon as they can. In Long Beach, California, I'm Salvador Duran, U News. More of U News after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your news, your world, U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. And another major retailer unveiling a new way to shop for groceries. But the move has some privacy advocates concerned. Grecia Lastra tells us why. To function every day, we need access to cards, wallets, debit cards, etc. But can you imagine replacing all of these items with your hand? Amazon has just announced a new payment technology that uses only the palm of your hand to make shopping faster and more convenient. Some Whole Foods stores have started using this system, called Amazon One. This type of technology has been with us for many years, biometrics, using fingers, the eyes. But it is something new for Amazon. It has to be seen if people are going to accept it. Many people are afraid of it. All you need is a credit or debit card, a phone number and the palm of your hand. Taking into account that no two palms are alike, vision technology evaluates multiple aspects of the palm and selects the most distinctive identifiers to create your signature. Privacy experts have warned against the use of biometric data, such as face and palm scans, because of the risk of hacking and theft. Amazon says it keeps palm images in a secure location in its cloud and does not store them on the Amazon One ID service. The technology right now is safe, but it's not known how safe will it be in a few years. Amazon also says that customers can ask at any time to have their personal information deleted. Reported by Galo Arellano in Miami, this is Grecia Lastra for U News.
Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.